Well, today I want to play a game as we get started in the message today. It's a game I like to call Who is More Powerful? And so I've brought some pictures with me today. I'm going to show you, and each picture will compare against another, and you get to decide who is more powerful. Do we have any college football fans in the room? Any college football fans? A good day in college football yesterday. Well, you may not know this about Pastor Jeff, our lead pastor, but he is a diehard Oklahoma Sooner fan. For whatever reason, I don't know, but you be the judge. But So in honor of Pastor Jeff, our first, our first comparison, who's more power, uh, powerful, starts with the OU Sooners. Here we go. So who's more powerful, Oklahoma or, or these guys, Michigan? The, the defense, specifically, the defense. And, and I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's not Oklahoma, but... but uh, you know, I'll go give them credit because they may have redeemed themselves yesterday. They did a great job yesterday. All right. So keeping with that theme of football, who's more powerful? This guy, John Gruden, kind of a loud mouth, or Tony Dungy, this guy right here, known for his quiet strength. Maybe it depends on your definition of power. I don't know. Uh, how about a cartoon comparison? We've got He-Man or SpongeBob SquarePants. You be the judge on that one. Now, a couple of our worship leaders, I think we should compare some of them. So how about, who's more powerful, uh, Jared's biceps or Brielle's biceps? <laughs> Hands down, Brielle. Uh, quiet strength. That's what I'm talking about right there. That's awesome. Now, last one. This is an easy one. That's me. Who's more powerful, me or this is my wife, Aubrey. Uh, while she was running the Tough Mudder, I was literally eating a cheeseburger. So... <laughs> You can be the judge on who's more powerful with that one. The question, who is more powerful, is not as easy of an answer as we might expect. Powerful people are not always easy to spot. Well, welcome to Element Church. My name is Andy Hazlett. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Element. Uh, just thankful that you're here today, whether you're joining us in person or via a video screen today. Uh, thankful that you're here, and, and it's an honor for me to share the message with you today. We're in a series leading up to Christmas titled Given. And in this series, we're talking about what we've been given in the person of Jesus Christ, the whole reason we celebrate Christmas. And last week, we dove into uh, Jesus as wonderful counselor. He is both wonderful and he is the counselor. The theme passage for the series is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. So let's take a, fra a fresh look at that. It says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen." Our focus today is on the attribute of Jesus, mighty God. And this prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and confirmed in his resurrection. The phrase mighty God, it points to the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus in fact is divine. Jesus is God. He is the Lord of heaven's armies. Pastor Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, He is able to do what he sets out to do, 
And what he sets out to do is conquer sin, defeat the evil that would maim and cripple our aspirations to goodness. There is nothing passive about our Savior. He incarnates an aggressive assault on what is wrong with a world that will finally result in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when I think about powerful people, powerful examples of of powerful people from the Bible that have been transformed by this mighty God that we read of, we have a lot of examples, so many examples in the scriptures. Esther, Nehemiah, Moses, Deborah. uh, I mean, we're around Christmas time. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have so many phenomenal examples But one that I'm really drawn to today that we're going to focus on in the message is the Apostle Paul from the New Testament. Paul was a powerful person. He's the greatest missionary of the first century, and he wrote the majority of the New Testament. Also in Paul, we have a powerful picture of transformation. He went from murderer to missionary. Now, let me just say quickly that you may be here today because someone forced you to be in church today, and maybe you don't even yet believe in Jesus. Maybe you're skeptical of this whole Christianity and Jesus thing. Well, you're in good company because Paul did too. He was skeptical of Jesus. That is, before Paul experienced a radical transformation through Christ, and then he committed his life to serving Jesus. Now, we all, we all may have a different concept of what it means to be a powerful person. But in Paul, we will see a redefinition of power that has nothing to do with big biceps or raising your voice. The big idea for the message today is this. Only the power of God can produce powerful people. The main scripture is Philippians 4 verses 10 through 19. Now, to give you just a quick background here, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, the church in Philippi, and he writes this letter while sitting in prison. That's an important fact to remember. In this chapter specifically, Paul is thanking this church for their generous financial support for his needs. And he articulates powerfully what the power of God has done in his life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible or own one, we'd love to give you one today. Stop at guest services, and we'd love to give you one. Starting in verse 10, it says this. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned. Everybody say learned. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Let's pause there for just a moment. This should encourage us because this is a challenging passage of Scripture, incredibly challenging. And Paul says multiple times that he learned, meaning he didn't just immediately do all these things and and know all these things. He learned how to be content. That should encourage us, I hope, today. Continuing, he says this, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned, there it is again, the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. 
As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Only the power of God can produce powerful people. So the big question we're going to ask and answer today is this. What does the power of God produce in a person? And number one, it's this. It creates direction. Creates direction. Let's look back at verse 13. This is a a very common, famous verse. You've probably heard it before. It says this again, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I, I believe this is one of, it's a phenomenal verse. It should be quoted often, but it's probably one of the most incorrectly interpreted verses in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Dr. J. Vernon McGee helps explain it for us a little bit. He says this, this should really be translated the way Paul wrote it. I can do all things in Christ, which strengtheneth me. When Paul says all things, does he literally mean all things? Does it mean you can go outside and jump over your house? Of course not. Paul says, I can do all things in Christ. That is in the context of the will of Christ for your life. Whatever Christ has for you to do, he will supply the power. Whatever gift he gives you, he will give the power to exercise the gift. Now, the first part of Philippians 4 is all about not worrying. And Paul says the antidote to not living in worry is to pray about everything. And when we pray about everything, God will create in the believer the passion for the things we ought to be doing. He will reveal to us what we've been created to do in His purpose. I brought a picture with me today, another one here. We've got, uh, you probably know this guy, Mr. Tim Tebow, and I I like this guy. Uh, This is a great guy, and I respect And I admire the fact that Tim Tebow has consistently used his God-given platform to bring glory to Jesus and point people to Jesus. I love that about Tim Tebow. And he would commonly put Bible verses on his face for football games. And I think that's incredible. And you'll notice it's the one we're looking at today, Philippians 4.13. Now, um, there, there are theologians that call this verse the Superman verse. And it's very common among athletes to put this on their face, the Superman verse. And to be fair, I have no idea how Tim Tebow would interpret this verse. I think actually he would probably interpret it the same way that I would interpret it. But sometimes we make a mistake when we, when we interpret it uh, kind of like this. I can do all things, Urgh, yeah, insert manly grunt. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, Tim Tebow is not a theologian. He doesn't claim to be a theologian. And I would bet money that Tebow would agree that when Paul said, I can do everything through Christ, he was not guaranteeing that Tim Tebow would win every football game and have a long NFL career. 
because he didn't win every football game. He didn't have a long NFL career, yet God used him, is using him, and will use him for his glory, right? There's a, a well-known uh, pastor of a large church. His name's John Piper, and I don't agree with everything he says, but uh, he gave some insight on this verse in a tweet that I thought was really challenging. He said this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like go hungry, get cancer, be killed, and go home. What we need to be careful of here in our interpretation of this verse is that I don't get to determine what I ought to do. The danger in the Superman verse is that we think we get to decide what we ought to be doing, and then we ask God to bless it. Like, we've already made our decision, and then after the fact, we expect God to bless something that He may not even want us to be a part of in the first place. You see, the power of Jesus creates in my life the what. I don't get to create the what. The goals in my life, they shouldn't come from me. They should come from Christ. They should be in His will. We must keep this in context because, remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison, and he's just told us that he's learned the secret of living in plenty or in poverty. And if Paul interpreted this verse the way we often do, he would have prayed for a miraculous prison break, but he didn't. Paul's version of I can do all things in Christ meant he would have the power to be content in a prison cell. Man, that's challenging to me. Practically, how do we know what is in Christ for me right now? Well, I'll tell you, you, you cannot know God's will for your life if you don't ever listen to His voice. You can't know His will for His life if you don't listen to His voice. So there are some spiritual to-dos I want to share it with you quickly. First one is this, surrender to Jesus as Lord. If you don't know Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior... If you haven't genuinely surrendered to Jesus as your Lord, then that is your next step. You need to start by committing your life to Jesus. The second is this, seek his voice through prayer and Bible reading. Prayer and Bible reading are the means in which God will communicate with us. Yet most Christians I, I talk to aren't doing either of those things. And it's no wonder why we're so confused over uh, what God's will is for our lives. Perhaps we need a stop it list. You know, perhaps you're so busy with hob hobbies or, or other priorities that any of the, uh, of the positive spiritual habits have been drowned out by the idol of busyness. I mean, whether it's waking up earlier, watching less TV, or reducing the number of activities that your family's involved with, until we make seeking His voice and listening to His voice a priority over other things, even other good things. There's lots of good things. I'm not saying don't do those necessarily. There's things we need to stop altogether, and then there's lots of good things that need to be put in their place. And we need to bring a priority to listening to God's voice. Until we do, we shouldn't be surprised on why we don't know what His will is for our lives. Only the power of God can produce powerful people. So what does the power of God do in a person? It creates direction. Number two is this. It produces contentment. We're going to jump around a couple different verses here, looking back at our main scripture 
The first part of verse 18 says this, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Remember, prison. (laughs) And Paul says, I'm amply supplied in prison. (laughs) That's incredible to me. I think he has a different definition of amply supplied than what I think uh, amply supplied should mean sometimes. Verses 11 and 12, he says this, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think we could just sit here for a while on this one point contentment. Challenging to me, so challenging to me. Do, do you realize that everything you have and everything you don't have is exactly what God wants for you right now? Contentment is perhaps the biggest challenge for the American church, especially in our culture that uh, generally abounds with stuff. For the one living in poverty, contentment means you can thank God for what you've been given. It means you do not live in depression nor obsession over the nice things you do or do not have. For the one living in plenty... It means your abundance has not spoiled your faith or your generosity. It means you hold your wealth and your abundance with an open hand, ready to give it away as God so directs. And in my my study, I ran across this prayer that the members of the Episcopal Church sometimes pray. This is worth writing down, by the way. Take a picture of it on the screen. Pray this prayer this week with me. It says this, Give us minds always contented with our present condition. Give us minds always contented with our present condition. Our joy must transcend our situation. The first part of Philippians 4 deals with having that kind of joy and peace in Christ. Now, I'll make an admission to you today. Um, I am a self-proclaimed hotel diva. Any hotel divas in the room? today. Here's what I mean by that. I enjoy a nice hotel compared to a, just a, a dump kind of place or a rundown kind of place. Now, I don't, I've never stayed in the Ritz, but I'd like to someday. I've never stayed in the Ritz, but when we plan vacations as a family, uh, I am a planner to the core. It might be weird, but I just am. So we will plan out, I'll plan out a year in advance sometimes, uh, a vacation we're going on, the route we're going to take, all the stops we're going to make along the way. I, I enjoy that for whatever reason, and I will research the, the hotels, the places we're going to stay, and we will sometimes drive 100 miles down the road further toward our destination if it means uh, we get to stay at a place that's a little bit nicer or a little bit better deal or whatever is like, like that. Well, this last summer, um, I had a, a phenomenal opportunity to go to Israel with a group from our church, and it was incredible. I mean, I, I learned so much, and it was awesome. Uh, And by the way, Pastor Jeff is leading a group this summer to Israel, so if you're interested, talk to him. There's still some uh, spots open on that trip. But the trip I went on, phenomenal, but the first hotel we stayed at wasn't so phenomenal. And uh, actually, it, it really wasn't that bad. It looked good on the outside, and, and most of it was, was good on the inside. 
But me and my roommate, uh, me and another pastor friend of mine were rooming together this whole trip, and we went up to our room, and we had been traveling at that point for whatever it was, day and a half or something, and so we're tired and, and ready to get some sleep. And we get up to our hotel room, and right outside the door on the floor was a big old cat turd just sitting right on the floor. Now, I didn't get down to inspect it to confirm, but I'm about 90% sure it was cat poop. I think cat poop looks the same on the other side of the world as it does here. It's hard to sleep when you have that kind of uh, encounter. And a couple of the ladies in our group that same night, they had a massive cockroach in their bathtub in their room that had to be, uh, had to be taken care of later. Well, why do I tell you that story? Um, in that silly kind of illustration and situation, um, contentment does not mean that I love cat turds and make the cockroach my pet. It doesn't mean that, okay? And we shouldn't be, you know, that's weird. That would be really weird. But what it does mean is that I don't lose my mind over the situation. I quickly get over it, right? Didn't ruin my trip. We laughed about it and tried, tried to sleep as best we could, you know, and the next day we went to a different hotel. It was fine. Like it, it means I, I don't tirelessly complain about the situation. I quickly, I quickly get over it. What would it look like for you to live in contentment? Now, this is not a message on personal finances today, but I've got to tell you, speaking of our personal finances, you know, we, we've got to stop going into debt for stupid stuff. I promise you the amount of debt an individual can pile up for stupid stuff will not ever produce a spirit of contentment in you. Quite the opposite. It will produce a spirit of discontentment. The example we have of the Philippian church is one of generosity. For whatever reason, this was the only church that gave Paul uh, financial support to his ministry. They were generous. And because they were generous, they shared in the blessing of Paul's ministry. Can you imagine? They didn't know all of what Paul's ministry would be. Can you imagine if the, the missionary you supported was the Apostle Paul? Talk about a blessing, right? That's so cool. Generosity, believe it or not, is one of the greatest tools that God uses to produce contentment in us. Because when I live out biblical generosity you know, tithing and, and giving over and above my, my tithe to other, other things and opportunities God brings to me. When, when I live out biblical generosity, it naturally puts the rest of my spending in its proper place. It's not just financial, though. What would it look like for you to be content in your present situation? What would it look like for you to be content with your home or the current vehicles you have? What would it look like for you to be content, but also single? What would that look like? It really speaks into every area of our lives. It should challenge us. It challenges me. Only the power of God can produce powerful people. So what does the power of God do in a person? It creates, it produces, it creates direction. It produces contentment. And lastly is this, number three, it is contagious. It's contagious. Verse 19, he says this, 
And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was convinced that the same spirit of contentment Christ had given him in poverty and in plenty was available to the believers in the Philippian church. And it is available to us as well. Here's the thing. Contentment breeds contentment. It's contagious. When God creates direction in your life and He gives you a spirit of contentment, it is amazing how God will use your life as a model and an inspiration to the people around you, as an encouragement to the people around you. A while back, I saw this picture on Facebook. I want to share it with you. Here it is, growing up poor, um, and it's the same slice of bread for you know, a number of different things. And it really made me and Aubrey, my wife, laugh, especially my wife, uh, because my wife, growing up, uh, her family, for you know, a number of different years, they lived on a shoestring budget. And so for her, she's got no problem using a regular slice of bread for a hot dog bun or a hamburger bun. And I'll never forget the first time that happened in our marriage. And I just thought, we can't do that. We need to go to the grocery store. We don't have hot dog buns. You can't use a regular slice of bread as a hot dog bun. It, it blew my mind. Not really, but I just thought, I thought that was so weird. She's perfectly fine with it. Around Christmas time, I, I make this comment um, about my wife. But my wife is the kind of per- just naturally content kind of person. You know, partly to do with the way she grew up and everything. And, um, just naturally kind of a content person. I've always admired that about her. And around Christmas time, I'll, I'll make the joke, if you gave her a stick of gum she'd be perfectly happy with that for Christmas. She, and it's, there's some truth in that. Uh, now, I'm smarter than that. <laughs> I would not get her a stick of gum for Christmas, mostly because it's, they're so hard to wrap, and the bows... Man, I didn't think anyone would laugh at that. I'm so glad you laughed at my terrible dad joke. But, but here's, here's the thing. The reason I tell you that, I, I'm not trying to puff up my wife or anything, um, but I, I can see in my, in my children, now my kids are regular, you know, selfish little buggers from time to time, right? Like they have lots of moments. Um, but, but every now and then, I, I see in my kids this spirit of contentment, and, and they get it from their mom. Not just when it comes to stuff, but they don't take themselves that seriously. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and kids have a way of, of doing that with us. Like spend more time with kids because they'll put you in, their, in your place and tell you how dumb you are or whatever. Like they'll make you feel that way and realize, well, I'm not that important, right? <laughs> contentment breeds contentment. And, and by the way, the flip side is just as true. Selfishness breeds selfishness. It just does. I mean, if you, if you just cannot understand why your kid is so dang selfish, more than likely, it has something to do with you. That's painful, right? Because we see ourselves in our kids, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see it. Your, your kids are watching. 
Your employees are watching. Your colleagues are watching. Your grandkids are watching. Your friends are watching. 